Hi, this is Corey Turner, and along with my wife Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. Look at a passage of scripture that has been a life verse for me. Early on in my journey of following Jesus, this verse became very meaningful for me and it became one that I have been regularly brought back to by the Holy Spirit. Uh, This is Mark chapter eight. Uh, We'll begin reading in verse 34. Maybe I should set it up for you. There's There's a companion passage in Mark chapter 16, but right before this, Jesus asked his disciples, Hey, who do people say that I am? And often that's the way that God begins to speak to us and challenge us us about Jesus' identity. Who do other people say that I am? But he always brings that question a little bit more personal. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter has this revelation, this moment where he says, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you are the one the Holy One of Israel, you're the one that we've been waiting on who would sit on this throne of David that would last for all of eternity, to have an eternal rule. You are the seed of Abraham. You're the Messiah, you're the Christ. And then Jesus, he was just talking to the disciples in this moment, but then he turns to all of the rest of the crowd and he begins to speak to them. So let's pick up there, verse 34. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, two things, for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I want to talk to you today about the two things that matter most. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence. And God, you've been here. You've been speaking. You've been Lord, even just as we worshiped you, I just saw this, like this river flowing from heaven and going out from amongst us. Lord, we ask that you'd speak to us. Lord, what do we need to hear for 2024? Fathers, we look ahead to this year. What do you want to say to us? Father, what matters most? What does it look like for us to align our hearts, our will completely, perfectly with yours? Lord, we're going to be speaking in generalities to some degree. Holy Spirit, we need you to come and make this word specific to every single heart that's here. And I thank you, Lord, that you are the teacher. You're the one who leads us into truth. Lord, we're leaning upon you. Come and make make this worth our time, Lord. Lord, we want to hear you speak. We're not here out of religious duty. We're here because we're desperately longing to hear your voice because you alone have the words of life. Would you speak to us in Jesus' name? Amen. So at our, um, on the first morning of staff advance, we've got these two days of meetings and we were in worship 
the first morning and I had this vision. Maybe it's a vision, maybe it's a prophetic picture. I don't know what you call it, but I saw something and I knew that in what I was seeing that Jesus was speaking to me. And what I saw was, it was a very simple kind of a picture and a vision, but God began speaking to me out of this. I saw Jesus who was just standing there and he had two things in his hands. In his right hand, he had a smelter's pot. He's holding it by the handle. And I'll explain what that is in a minute if you don't know. And in his left hand, he was holding a sword, a smelter's pot and a sword. And as I'm seeing this picture, this vision, these thoughts begin to drop into my head about what this vision means, what Jesus was trying to say. And I was trying to work out, what is this for? Is this for me? Is this for someone? I actually almost started typing out a message to send to someone else, but, that, but I felt, no, no, this isn't a message for them because I felt to pray for them right after that. This is something that Jesus was not only just speaking to me, but I believe speaking to our church and speaking to the church, that there's something significant about this hour. Now, these are things that are always important to Jesus, but there is some kind of divine acceleration of what Jesus is doing amongst his people and the church that he wants to begin to speak to us about and release over us. So the spelter's pot represents the refining process that the Lord takes us through. You know what the smelter is? It's the, the purifier of precious metals who sits over the pot. You know, you pour all the gold in, the precious metals, and then you heat it up on the bottom and, and it begins to heat up. And, and in that heating up, the dross rises to the top. And then uh, as it rises to the top, there's those impurities that are in there and you skim them off the top. You keep doing the process, working the process over and over, heat it up from the bottom, the, the impurities rise to the top, skim it off. And it's a really good picture. And in fact, scripture speaks of God himself being the smelter. He is the purifier of precious metals. Uh, the, there's a purification process that God takes each and every one of us through. And I felt Jesus saying that I'm standing amongst you as your purifier. He's standing before us as the one who wants us to be refined, calling people out of just the crowd and into a life of full, complete devotion to him, purifying our motive, purifying our heart, and putting himself as the most important person in our lives. See, that's what the purification process is all about. It's about burning up all the other idols, all the things that we look to, all the things that we might go to to find needs of our soul met, and only Jesus remaining. We see this all through Scripture, that Jesus is demanding to be number one in our lives. He would have these many times in his ministry where he would really want to find out who's really amongst him. It was like he was saying things that would bring some fire and, and dross would rise to the top. So for instance, one time he said, uh, if you don't eat my flesh 
and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And it says after that, many who followed him left at that point. It was too much. This is too much, Jesus. I can't eat your flesh, drink your blood. Take me fully into yourself. I, I am your only source for all of your spiritual needs. Another time he, he challenges our tendency to, to give ourselves to and prioritize relationships above him. He says, if you don't hate your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your wife, even your own life, you can't be my disciple. Jesus says, I will be, I demand to be the most important person in your life. Sure, you can remain a part of the crowd and you can know me from a distance, but if you want to truly be my disciple, then I have to be the most important person in your life. And he says, I'm coming amongst you in this season as the purifier. I'm removing every other loyalty. I have to be number one. There is no other God before me. You can have no idols before me. But that's not all that Jesus cares about. There was something in his left hand that I saw, and it was the sword which represents the word of God or the gospel, the spiritual battle that Jesus calls all of us to, the the calling, the purpose to be used by him to advance his kingdom in the earth, to be vessels through whom, as we've received his love, his love flows out of us and touches other people, and other people encounter him and experience him. And so he doesn't just call us to the smelter's pot, he calls us to carry the sword, to wield the the word of God. He calls us not just to himself as a person, but he calls us to the gospel and the kingdom as a purpose. And so as we come into this new year, I just sense that God is challenging us out of his presence this morning to a renewed consecration. Can we begin this year consecrating ourselves to him yet again? There is another level of devotion to him that we can give him. There is another level of consecration to him as a person and to his purpose, to the gospel. I preached a message on the 31st of December, the seven habits of a strong disciple. We talked about these seven areas of our lives where we should have we should have these habits. We should have, uh, we should be growing in all of these areas. You should listen to it. It's a great message. But all of those things are subject to the two most important things, which is Jesus and the gospel. We talked about spiritual uh, growth, relational growth, physical or physical health. We talked about emotional health, financial health. We talked about intellectual strength and and our how we manage our time. But all of those things are subject to the two most important things. Because he comes and he, he purifies our motives in all of these things that we give ourselves to. The only motive is Jesus and the gospel. There's no motive greater. Touches everything in our lives. Jesus wants us to grow in all these areas. But the motive of our heart, the purpose behind it all, is Jesus and the gospel. And so when we think about like relationship, like this even defines these, these priorities of Jesus and the gospel, the, the, the smelting pot and the sword. It defines even my marriage, my relationship, 
who I'm married, the very reason we got married, the reason we have children, the reason we have six kids. You don't just go and marry anyone, right? Because it's all about Jesus and the gospel. I gotta be united with someone whose heart is passionately devoted to the one whom I'm devoted to. We join ourselves together and we have babies, not just to make us feel good about ourselves, not just to, to have someone to give an inheritance to, but because of the Great Commission. Because there are no greater disciples on the planet than the, that I know there's no greater influence I can have than those who are gonna get the best time for 18 years from me. They get the most of me. They get for better or for worse. No greater influence in discipleship can we have than in our children. And so it frames everything, our motive for business, finance. Why do we want to steward money well? Why do we want to create wealth? Jesus and the gospel. We want to glorify him. Why do we want to grow in influence? It's not for our own pride and feel better about ourselves. It's for Jesus. To glorify him is for the gospel. And so Jesus lays this value system out as the only qualification, the prime qualification for being his disciples. If you want to follow me, I have to be the most important person in your life. There's no other option. If you want to come after, you want to follow me, I have to be most important. And my purpose, the purpose of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom has to be your greatest purpose. You got to lay your life down for me and for the gospel. It's not enough for you to just lay your life down for me. Not just enough to jump in the smelter's pot. It's not just enough to, to love me and worship me and be refined by me and be purified and grow in character. That's all good. But he says, I'm putting a sword in your hand. I'm calling you to a purpose. And so to help us align with these two things quickly, I want to, I want to just, kind of break down this passage. And, and Jesus, he, he, he gives us three things related to following him. He gives us the cost of following him, the motive for following him, and the chief enemy of following him. So we're going to pull those out. So first, the cost of following Jesus. We can just simply say this. Jesus requires a life of self-denial unto death. How's that for an altar call for you? All right. Take up your cross, he says. In Jesus' day, the, the, the cross was not a religious symbol. The cross was a symbol of execution and the worst kind of death imaginable. We walk around today, of course, with the religious symbol on the, on the necklace, and it, it has a, a meaning for us of what Jesus did for us on the cross. But when Jesus said this, take up your cross, he might as well in our day said, take up your electric chair. How dark would that be? You see somebody with a little electric chair hanging around a, on their necklace, you know, like this is what he, it was, he, the, the cross was an instrument of death. He says, take it up. If you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, pick up the cross because I'm taking you on a journey of death. I'm taking you to die. Galatians 2.20 Man, when Paul said this, the, the Romans would have heard this when he said, I've been crucified with Christ. The Romans heard this and they, they disdained anyone who was crucified. You had to be like crucified. To be crucified was the worst way of dying imaginable. And Paul is glorying in his crucifixion with Christ. I've been crucified with him. 
I'm dead to myself. The old, the old Paul is dead and gone. Man, when we baptized Jono in the river a few weeks ago or a couple months ago, we, 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 we left the old Jono dead on the bottom of the Swan River. Because that's what he demands. He, he demands death. If you're going to be my disciple, you got to take up your cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. There is, there is just no other invitation from Jesus if you want to be his disciple. And so the smelter's pot is all about death to self. Jesus using the circumstances of our lives to just burn off of us all of the fleshy, self-focused things that we tend to give ourselves to. The, the, all those idols before we knew Jesus that were our comforters and that we went to, some of them fall off quickly, but some of them take a little bit longer to fall off. And he comes and he purifies us. And we need to see this process of becoming more like Jesus and being a more moral person, really nothing more than just more and more and more making Jesus the most important person in our life. All right, we, we, he doesn't call us to make a big deal about all the enemies. It's just the more we love him, the more stuff starts to fall off. The more I'm worshiping God in his presence. And, you know, like I remember being a new Christian and, and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I got some things I need to go home and throw away. You know, it's just the presence of God just comes and burns away lust. He burns away pride. And so we're told over, over and over again in scripture to, to rejoice when we face trials and difficulty because God is using that as the smelter to make us more like Jesus, to produce stronger character in us. And, and I look at some of the most difficult seasons of my life, like seasons of financial challenge where I would just, I remember once sitting, laying on the couch, my head is in Olivia's lap and I am weeping, crying. I'm a grown man crying like a baby, feeling just in financial brokenness, like I am not even worthy of living, not even worthy of being called a man. I'm a horrible provider. And Jesus in that moment is burning away from me all the other things I'm finding my identity in. Like, I want you to find your identity in me. Your identity as a man is not in how much money you can produce, but it's in your love and passion and devotion and dependence upon me. He burns away the idols because he wants to be most important. And so we take up our cross on day one and we say, here I am, I'm coming to follow you. And he leads us on this journey of deeper and deeper death to self. So what are the idols that most compete in your heart for the, your affection for God? Jesus is coming in 2024 as the smelter. And so we can work with him or we can resist him. He's not coming to condemn. He already loves us. We're already fully accepted. 
We're already his son, his daughter, but he's coming and asking us, will you work with me this year? Will you let me refine and purify? Will you, will you let me clean your hands and purify your heart that my presence might come and dwell with you more richly in 2024? Oh, Lord, that's what we desire. We just want your presence. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who has clean hands and a pure heart? And, Lord, there's a sense where you, are, you make us that in what you, the righteousness you impute to us. But, Father, we want to practice it. Father, may there be nothing in our lives that quenches your spirit. We want your manifest presence. Second, we see here the motive for following Jesus. Jesus in the gospel is all that will matter to us in eternity. That's what he's trying to say. It's all that's going to matter. Nothing else is going to matter in eternity but these two things. And so the way that Jesus lays out the extreme cost of death to self and taking up the cross, he says it in a way that makes us think we would be stupid to even bother not doing that. We would be foolish to give ourselves to anything else other than complete and radical devotion to Jesus. He says, if you want to try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake and the gospels, you'll save it. There's a reward there. There's something he's beckoning us to, he's calling us to. On the other side of that radical devotion, saying, trust me, the reward is great. It's worth it. It's costly, yes, but it's worth it. But he's also saying, trust me, the consequences of not doing that are also great. He's appealing to us. If we give ourselves in this life to only what is comfortable and only what feels good, only what feeds the flesh, then we will eventually come to the place at some point, the end of our life, hopefully sooner, when we stand before him, where we will realize that we have wasted our life. We left a whole lot on the table that he had called us to. But he's saying, if you will follow me, if you'll put me first, if you will just sell out everything for the kingdom, for the gospel, for this purpose that I've called you to, then you will have no regrets in heaven. And so what Jesus is challenging us with here is what should matter most to you today is what is going to matter to you most in heaven when you get there. About 12 years ago, there was this Aussie woman named um, Bonnie Ware, and she wrote this book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. Anybody ever heard of that book? I think it was a blog post first, and it, it went viral, and then she wrote a book. She's like, man, I'm going to capitalize on this. I'm going to write a book. But it was inspired by her time as a palliative care nurse. And so she had this very unique perspective, having worked for many years with people that were dying, and she lists in this book these five things that people in this moment of clarity 
wished that they had given their life for. And they were mostly about taking more risks and investing themselves more in relationship and not allowing their lives to be defined by the expectations of other people, stuff like that. But the point of it is, and, and really the point she brings out in the book, is that there is a phenomenal clarity of vision that comes at the end of one's life. There's something that happens when you're laying on your deathbed and you're looking back and you're pondering and considering what could have been and what you wish you would have done differently. And she's writing in this book, appealing to people to, can, can you try to get that clarity now, today, while there's still time to do something about not having the regret later. Now, I got a little taste of this when I had my final coffee with Sophia in Applecross a couple weeks ago. And it hit me as we're sitting there. And I just started crying. We're sitting there having a coffee together. And I start crying because it was this realization that it's, it's over. Done. The influence and impact of me in Sophia's life day on day, investing time in her as she's living under my roof, it's over. And I start thinking about how did I do? How did I go? Like, could I have done, man, did I should have spent more time with her? And, uh, you know, and she's like, oh, dad, don't start crying. You know, you're going to make me cry. And you were a great dad. And, but you just can't help but in that moment to have this, this extreme clarity. And Jesus is saying that there is a moment of clarity that's coming for all of us when we stand before him. And on that day, there's only going to be two things that matter. To what degree did I lay down my life for Jesus? And to what degree did I give myself to the purpose of the growth and advance of the kingdom of God? That's it. That's all that's going to matter. And so Jesus is appealing to us now, saying, prioritize your life around these two things, Jesus and the gospel. Make it the most important thing today. And so can we just begin to invite now this clarity from the Holy Spirit? That's same. can we, man, how great would it be today on this day to have this clarity that we would have on the day that we stand before him of really valuing what matters most? Because on that day, too late, right? Can't go back. But today, I don't care how young you are. I don't care how old you are. There is still time to lay down everything for Jesus. Don't let the enemy say that, oh, this would have been a great message for you to hear when you were 20 years old. Shut up that lie. Just shut down that lie. All right? Today is the day where God's grace is available for Jesus and the gospel to be the most important. I was struck with this as a young believer. God gave me this vision of me standing before him. And in this vision, I look behind me and there's this, this sea of people. God was speaking to me and saying, if you put me first, if you put my gospel first, then I'll use you to influence this many people. You'll stand before me 
and you'll see a sea of people whose life were inf- was influenced by your discipleship. Now, I didn't, not meaning I personally influence all those people, but somebody that I disciple disciples someone who disciples someone who disciples someone. And Jesus began to speak to me from God's covenant promise to Abraham, where he says to him, I will make your descendants innumerable as the stars of the heavens and the sand that is on the seashore. Abraham didn't meet all of them in that moment. He knew Isaac around for some grandbabies, but that's it. He's gone. But he has this covenant promise of innumerable descendants. And, and, and this is not a promise for the pastor, for the church planter. This is the promise, the covenant promise for every believer that God can and will and wants to use your life to change eternity. He wants to use your life as a disciple maker. By the way, you're all called. We're all called. What does it mean to lay down your life for the gospel? It means to take up the call to make disciples. That is the call of everyone. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, I'm going to make you into a fisher of people. There is no other purpose. There is no other path Jesus will lead you on other than the path of being made a disciple maker. And as we influence someone and we die long gone and the influence of our life is still around in the disciples that are being made. We're the spiritual descendants of 12 apostles, are we not? And so in the same way, God wants to use each of us to leave that same kind of mark. Finally, Jesus speaks of the chief enemy of following him. And so he warns us of the pride that manifests as the fear of man. It's amazing all the things that Jesus could have said in this moment that was the indication of whether we've truly died to self or not. We've truly lost our lives for him in the gospel. It's seen in, are we or are we not ashamed of him in front of people? I think we've got that slide. We'll put it up, that third one. The chief enemy. Whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the son of man also be ashamed. And so he's warning us of this pride, this self-focus that cares way too much about other, what other people Think about us. It's like he's saying the one thing that will keep you from the smelter's pot, the one thing that will take the sword out of your hand is the fear of man. It's the pride. It's the focus on self that elevates self above Jesus and the gospel. And so when I look back on my life, one of the most insidious enemies that I've faced is this. Took me months. Jesus had to so break me down to not even care about what my friends were going to think about me if I choose to serve him, because that was the number one thing. I'm going to have to, I could feel Jesus calling me, but I knew I got to go to all of my other wannabe hippie friends who I'm smoking weed with every day and say, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm serving Jesus now. And I cared too much what they thought about me. But Jesus turns up the fire. And he made my life so painful apart from him that the pain of not serving him became greater to me than whatever perceived pain I would face in my friends rejecting me. And so he burned up that idol out of my heart. 
idol of the fear of man. Maybe you're battling this in your own vision for your life. Something you know you're supposed to do. You know some, Jesus is calling you to do something, but the fear of being bullied, the fear of what other people are going to say is keeping you from stepping into your kingdom destiny. We just got to die. Die to self. There's only two things that really matter. The smelter's pot and the sword. And so I want to really just challenge you to carry this picture, this vision of these two things with you. This is all that matters. Jesus and the gospel. Nothing else. Nothing else. We're going to stand before him. We're going to give an account for our lives. And all we're going to care about on that day is to what degree did I lay my life down for Jesus and the gospel. I just want to end with a story of a dear friend of mine who his life was cut short and he went to heaven, felt like way too early. So my friend Beto Chapa, he was, uh, he was a missionary from the States. He and his wife, Holly, they had two young boys. Their boys were kind of roughly the same age as Nathan. We were living in Melbourne, it was 2005, and uh, they'd come from the States. They were on team there at the church. Put a photo of Beto up here. That's Beto. Beto is half Mexican, half American. That was his wife, Holly, Isaac, and Jakey, his sons. I was over in New Zealand, lives, and a bunch of people went to a couple in the church. They had their 10th wedding anniversary, and it was catered, and Beto ate a buckwheat pancake with caviar on it, and he had an allergic reaction, went into anaphylactic shock, and he, on the way, they, he, he started to feel something was wrong. They jump in the car out on Sydney Road, bumper to bumper traffic, call the ambulance, meets him there, and he dies in my friend Marty's arms, just collapses right there in the middle of the street on Sydney Road in Melbourne. They try to resuscitate him, uh, get him back, and then he goes, get him back anyway, he, he died. Of course, he leaves Holly and two boys. She was pregnant actually at the time. So we're all broken. We're all like, how could this happen? Uh, she ends up moving back to the States and um, she wrote a book. And in this book, she speaks of a dream that she has where Beto came and visited her in this, in this dream. Before I share that, uh, the happy ending to the story is Holly got remarried to a guy named Jeremy, who was in a group of 12 people when they were in New Zealand that met in their home every week that Beto discipled. So every week, Beto is discipling 
not knowing it, discipling the man who's going to raise his boys. So she has this dream about, I don't know, some time after Beto dies. She says, it was a long dream. I'll just read this. It was a long dream that held a lot of great meaning for me personally. But I'll skip to the part that is relevant and beneficial to anyone who reads it. The last part of the dream was so vivid and made such an impact on me that there has not been a day go by when I haven't thought about what he said. The dream ended with my husband, Beto, opening the door into a room where I was sitting in a big chair. As he walked in, he looked around to see if anyone had seen him come in. He sat down on the floor in front of me, resting his chin on my knee. He said, I'm not really supposed to be here, but God said that he would let me come and tell you this one thing. He went on to say, I know that you may not be able to understand this, but you are in a much better place than I am. Don't misunderstand me. You wouldn't even be able to fathom how incredible eternity is. Your mind could never even imagine a place like this. But let me tell you that I would trade places with you in a heartbeat. It really is true that when you worship at the throne of God, you lay your treasures at his feet. The thing is, I've already given him everything I had to offer. And that is all I can do for all of eternity. I interrupted. I said, but Beto, you did so much. You reached more people in a few short years than most people do in a lifetime. He said, I know, but there were so many opportunities that I missed and so much more that I could have done. It's not that God demands more from me. It's just that I stand before him and wish I had more to offer. Holly, you still have an opportunity while you're here on earth to store up treasures in heaven. You have to teach this to the boys. The first thing in the morning when they wake up, I want you to go to them and tell them that daddy says not to ever wish they could go to heaven now just to be with me. Tell them to spend their lives on the things that are of eternal value. So that when you stand before God one day, they will have much more to offer him than I ever did. It's only two things that matter. What a gift to have this kind of clarity. Uh, you, you know, we spend our lives trying to get to heaven, thinking about if I can just get to heaven. And what if when we get there, we realize, wait a minute, it was that life where the battle against darkness is raging. It's that life where where all that I have to offer to Jesus for all of eternity comes from. All the gifts, all the crowns, everything I can lay at his feet comes from to what degree did I lay down my life for Jesus and the gospel. Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again, 
conquering sin, Satan and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, Amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.